this is one that I, I hear a lot. So how do you justify user experience? Um, why is it important? I think a great feature set without a great user experience will eventually lose to the competition. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable, new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And today we've invited Raina Mehta, Head of Product and User Experience at Kaplan. Thanks so much for joining us today, Raina, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Janelle. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about your career journey. Fascinated by it. I know you're currently in your role as head of product and UX at Kaplan, but what was your path to, to this role? It's been a long path. I've been in product um, in digital product development for over 15 years, and it really started in college. Uh, probably junior year, I really didn't know what I was going to, um, you know, do uh, as a career. And I have always been a maker at heart and the internet was becoming a fascinating new medium. So I decided to, you know, try my hand at HTML and and got an HTML for dummies book um, and, uh, you know, learned uh, to code in a weekend And from there, I really was taken by the creativity of both coding and the design aspects. I did a little bit of both and landed uh, a job at Prudential uh, right after college. And um, they were doing some interesting things in the digital space. So I really felt like I had sort of hit the jackpot with a company that understood it in such, you know, in its infancy, understood digital Um, So anyway, I designed their website and I eventually grew into a management role there. Um, I was there, I guess, for about um, nine years. And then after 9-11, I wanted to change. I tried my hand at nonprofit, but I really missed sort of the structure and the makership of products. So I, I eventually came back to corporate I spent nine more years in finance. I went to Fitch Solutions and um, it was really there that I learned the power of research and data to help make good decisions. I had a manager at the time who was really adamant that we talked to one, one to three clients every week. And, you know, it was a little bit of those requests from your manager that you sort of blow off because you've got other things to do and that take precedence. Um, But I think this was really his way of helping us learn how to validate our ideas and empathize with customers. And I actually loved talking to customers and learned a lot from them. And I um, found that it really this practice bolstered my confidence and my credibility with sales and the business folks, you know, to whom I would try to influence with my ideas and felt like I, you know, the ideas that I would come forward with um, were really born directly from customer feedback. So it gave me a lot of support. So I felt that was like a tool that was super useful to me. And then um, I also hired our first data analyst, developed a little bit of a fledgling product analytics team. And I started to see how data you know, could help us really uncover these stories. I became a data junkie. And so, you know, I really early on felt that the power of research um, was 
really aligned with how I like to work. And then, so after nine years, I went to NBC Universal. Um, I worked at one of their properties called CNBC. They wanted to build out a subscription product. They were seeing, a, you know, their advertising revenue was dipping, much like our, all publishers, and they wanted to diversify their revenue streams. I put up a paywall, you know, added e-commerce um, capabilities to their platform, and then created subscription content and launched what's called CNBC Pro. It was at CNBC that my manager there brought in Jeff Gothelf, who is sort of the father of Lean UX. And what Lean UX is, is really sort of the intersection of design thinking and, you know, the customer centricity and the, the, the creativity that comes with that, but also bringing speed to it, like rapid prototyping and sort of moving fast into iterations. I sort of fell in love with product all over again and became an evangelist within CNBC of Lean UX. And then from there went to Amazon, where I really was just eager to learn how to up my product game with all their Amazonian ways. You know, they're very, they pride themselves on being customer obsessed. I felt like I fit right into that culture and they really upped my game with the working backwards process, taught me how, you know, important writing is to communicating effectively and like really Mm -hmm. moving away from PowerPoint um, to get product ideas across And then from there, you know, finally at Kaplan, where, as you said, I had a product in UX and that's been a tremendous experience because it's, um, I've landed in a company that isn't digital first, they're embarking on a digital transformation. So this is a challenge and um, a journey that I've actually never been on. And it's been um, a great learning experience for me. Sounds like you've had really unique challenges and opportunities throughout your your journey and your (laughs) certainly at the right place at the right time in terms of what's next for you. Um, I love, I love your story, your role today at Kaplan. Can you tell us a bit more about the scope of that current role and your team kind of where your team fits in within Kaplan, what roles are on your team and and even your team's mandate. Kaplan uh, North America has, uh, I would say, uh, you know, their primary businesses are in exam prep which is really, you know, helping um, students of all kinds and ages prep for exam certifications, everything from the SAT, MCAT, nursing certifications, the CFA, BAR. And then they have another side of their business, which is called online program management, which is a big growing sector in education where they, OPMs as they're called, will power the digital courses and curriculum of universities that are moving their courses to online. So I work on the exam prep um, part of the business and my team consists of product managers, UX researchers, and UI designers, and then we have a growth and strategy team. Our mandate is to essentially build a single digital experience for the biggest of our exam prep products, of which there are about, you know, there are over about 15 of them, but really focusing on the top 10 and trying to unify what is, what are, you know, these sort of programs and products that have been built throughout the years, independent from each other, you know, as we're really sort of learning more about digital and how we want to operate in the digital space, we see that there's a lot more commonalities among students, even across programs that are so different, like SAT and CFA, than there are differences. So it makes a lot more sense for us to invest in a single digital experience that can be, you know, configured differently for different courseware, but really at its heart does you know, the same thing for all students and enables them to achieve their educational outcomes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting that you, you pull that point out around how there's more 
similarities between the students across different programs than differences. What are some of the similarities, if you wouldn't mind evaluating that or elaborating on that? I think that we can all relate to some, you know, the the common pain points of students that they are looking for the most efficient way to get to their educational outcomes. We have um, students who are, you know, there to really learn the content. And then we have students who are really there to pass an exam. And so some of that mindset is different. And, but there are ways that you can really build personalization into a platform to help overcome or meet the student where they need to be, even when their learning objectives are slightly different. But giving them, you know, a personalized path that helps them take or sort of make sense of, you know, what can be 600. We have some courses that have 600 or more modules that you have to move through. And that's really overwhelming for students. So, giving them a way to, you know, helping um, them understand and us also um, identify what their strengths and weaknesses are through, you know, pre-testing and other types of methods helps us personalize for them so that they aren't as overwhelmed. They can have a more customized path to learning. They, you know, students want to feel just like they interact with a teacher who sort of understands them and does those things for them in a in-person environment. The technology is there today. We can do that with, you know, a, a, a sound platform. You know, that's one part of it is helping a student really work through their coursework in the most efficient way. And then the other is, um, you know, is motivation. And how do we keep a student motivated when they're moving through that many modules? And um, it can be a drag. Some of these courses, you know, on average, they take about four months, uh, if not, you know, more, sometimes up to a year, keeping them engaged and helping them feel like they're not alone as they are moving through, you know, in some cases, a self-paced environment is the other part that that we want to tackle that is very common across all of our you know, student pain points. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see there being similarities across other industries too. I mean, engagement and adoption is huge and lots of, yeah. lots of different teams across many industries. Great. So let's talk a little bit about the shifts in online education. You mentioned the team is focused on a digital transformation, which I imagine has been coming for some time, but perhaps accelerated by the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what you've seen at Kaplan or and what the organization has seen, I don't know, in the last decade or so, and, and even what's happened in the last year? I think that most people in you know the ed space will agree that the shift towards online education was um, was underway, you know, well before COVID. And that is the the dynamics that you've seen playing out in the last um, several years, but COVID accelerated that because as we've all either experienced ourselves or watched, you know, our children struggle with the pain of online learning is just so prevalent now. And so there's a, you know, this urgency to sort of tackle almost every aspect, I would say, of online education. There's, you know, there's startups and incumbents alike that are both trying to tackle how do you make a live online class engaging and keep it interactive? How do we overcome technology constraints and bandwidth issues? How do we give educators the ability to administer tests in an online environment? Because, you know, unless you have online proctoring um, software, it's really hard to prevent cheating. So, and then there's the social challenge that I mentioned before is like, how do you 
help students feel like they're not isolated and give them not just social, social, emotional support as they're learning, but maybe peer to peer collaboration. So all of those were already, I think, underway in pockets of the ed tech space, but now they're all sort of full steam ahead. And then there's also a, you know, a move just because the learner, you know, as digital natives are, are becoming more of our learner base there's a move to self-directed learning. And a lot of the things that a teacher would bring to a classroom environment can be sort of achieved in some way through the technology. So I mentioned before, like personalization is a way that a teacher would traditionally have customized a course or given a student that instant feedback um, to let them know, okay, you just scored this on this test or assessment. Now, the next thing you should do is really, you know, you need some more work in the foundational material. So spend some time there or you scored really high on that quiz. You can go on to the next module. That's the kind of thing that a teacher would normally do, but the technology can do. There's also sort of video explainers and video content has become so obviously easily consumable. Um, we've really figured out how to chunk the video content. And gamification is at the heart of what students really understand and, and a way of motivating students that can be brought into the online learning medium. So the students are asking for a different way to engage. They are saying, I want to be more self-directed. Give me the tools. Give me this online sort of you know toolkit that can help me pace myself and work independently. Got it. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear all of the different ways that this space is evolving. And to your point, how a lot of this was sort of in the in the making, but COVID essentially kind of accelerated it. I imagine these shifts in how people learn and engage with educational platforms has really impacted how you and your team think about and plan for the future. Is that true? For sure. I think that there, there's probably two areas that we're really, we, we've been um, focused on and we're thinking about even more. One is what I just mentioned, how do we really meet the needs of a, a self-directed student? Because, you know, Kaplan, if you think about our in-person classes, which is where, you know, we were primarily operating, um, not solely, those are sort of comprehensive classes is what we call them. So a student signs up for the whole course, the whole series, they get all the materials, they get the teacher, they get everything that we could give them during the course of those you know, 12, 13, 14 weeks. When you, when you think about digital learning now, again, that student, a student may not want everything. They are much more adept at sort of cobbling together their own resources. You know, you might have students who are learning on Khan Academy or YouTube, and they're really coming to Kaplan for supplementary material as opposed to the whole comprehensive course. You know, we have to think a little bit more about how we fit into that space as do all sort of, you know, education providers. Now you are not actually, I think all, you know, businesses need to operate this way. It's you have consumers who are just more adept at researching online, all of the options and then curating their own uh, solution to the problem. So I think all, you know, digital companies are being asked to think of themselves or position themselves. I think the way to win, right, these days is really to position yourself as a partner on a journey with the student rather than, you know, that transactional provider of content or that a thing. It's not about a thing. It's about a journey and a partnership and, you know, being able to be there for whatever that student needs, if it's uh, supplementary to something else or the all-in-one solution. 
but that's how we spend um, a lot of our time is thinking about how we how we partner with these students on that that journey test prep and that life change that comes with te- te- uh, test prep is a really stressful time in the students' lives and we really appreciate that and want to make it as easy as possible for them. Sure, you're right. Yeah, there's a certain level of stress and we all know that learning and comprehension in periods of stress can be can be challenging and you're somewhat limited. And so taking that into account, I think is is really important. I also love the approach around thinking about the education as a as a journey versus these disparate experiences. I mean, I'm sure you've heard various versions of parents talking about remote learning and and keeping their kids engaged. You know, I myself am going through that that, uh, experience as well. And I've been really kind of shocked, to be honest with you, in terms of how many different places my children have to go to get what they need for learning. And so this idea of sort of making this easier, building a more comprehensive journey whether that's building it into your own platform or even integrations or partnerships with other platforms, like there's something there that I think is missing in this shift to um, digital education. Do you see that too? Completely 100%. I mean, this is where I think, you know, not just the integration that you're talking about across platforms, but just usability as a core principle of education <laughs> is so important because this isn't a moment where you're sitting down in front of your TV or YouTube and you're looking to be entertained. This is already a hard moment <laughs> that yeah. you're probably not looking forward to. <laughs> and so you've already got sort of the cognitive overload happening with everything that you have to learn and then on top of that, to put upon the student the idea of like, now you're going to have to work to figure out even how to access your resources, you know, to make sure that you're doing it in the way that is like the right way and your teachers expect you to do is just overwhelming. And it really is probably why you see students just opting out. And we have so much of the term that's evolved Zoom fatigue. It's not about Zoom. It's just about the online learning environment and how much multitasking has become sort of this, this expectation now of students. It's, it's a lot. It really is. Um, my, my second grader uses a platform, which I will not name the name, but I have been really disappointed in terms of, uh, the, the, what you're talking about, the user experience and the usability of it. This is already a a challenging situation, as you mentioned, but it's like, Every single design standard you can think of breaking in this product, like they have figured out a way to do that. And so it's to the point now where my husband and I even have a hard time helping her, you know, navigate the experience. And, you know, I feel for her. I feel for the teachers too. I mean, it's, it's not just impacting the individual student, but it's, it's hard for the teacher to manage because they can't see what's going on on the other end. You know, they have their teacher view versus the student view. So There's just, there's so many, so many components to it. It's really true. I mean, yeah, the educators are, um, are also on the receiving end of, you know, poorly designed um, uh, features. So they're also Mm -hmm. struggling. It's, uh, you know, definitely has so much room for um, opportunity and um, continued disruption. Absolutely. And, And actually, it's a nice segue to the next question we have, which is, advice that you might have for teams that are focused on creating these educational related experiences? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the the really interesting learnings that I've had coming into the ed space is that 
Number one, I mean, Kaplan is very fortunate. We have a psychometrics team and a learning science team. You know, there's another dimension of UX in the education space, and it's learner efficacy. We call it learner experience. That is about, you know, how does, it's answering the question of how does the product actually help the student achieve their educational goals? And the psychometrics team, you know, helps us do the heavy lifting of making sure that our you know, everything that we design and develop is science-backed and validated. And so most ed companies don't have um, these resources because they're specialized, they're expensive. It's hard to find um, these types of resources. So overall, I think education is tricky because when I, when I first joined, I, I heard this analogy. I think it's a really good one. There's an element of having to ask your students to eat the spinach when they use your product, whereas you, as a product and UX person, you always want to give your, your students candy. You want them to have a delightful experience. You want them to sort of, you want to give them the easiest route to accomplish their goals, reduce sort of the friction and the, the steps involved as we were talking about. But at the same time, learning is most efficacious if you spend time on it. And so the idea of UX sort of, you know, reducing your task on time but LX really being about, it's actually time on task that helps you be more efficacious is a little bit incongruous. And we're always trying to sort of figure out, you know, there's a little bit of tension between those teams. So as anyone sort of embarking on building educational experiences, we'll need to think about how do you sort of, you know, bring the right learning science and experience to the courses while sort of bringing the UX, um, you know, the candy-like experience and the delight to the spaces in between. That's where you can sort of help the student get shortcuts and how they navigate through. But when they're in a course, you really need them to be motivated to stay in there for a little while. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's like this, this interesting balance between engagement and people getting immersed in something versus just getting the thing done. Right. And, and That's right. yeah, where, where do you kind of, where, where do you fall there between those two ends of the spectrum? So shifting gears a little bit, you know, you've had lots of experience at, at different places and kind of broadly would, I'm curious about uh, your, your views on design thinking. You know, it's, it's one of those areas that I think has made a lot of traction. And I think sometimes it can be seen as something great, or it can be seen as something that can be challenging to, to implement, to manage, to get people to buy into. So I'm curious how, you know, if, if design thinking is something that you've leaned on in, in your different roles, if that's something, um, you know, that you've used as a, as, as a way to align teams, how you've done that, how you've integrated it into the teams you've led and maybe some lessons learned. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. And you're, you're, you're right in saying that it's been very different in how it's applied depending on different factors. I am a, you know, overall a big proponent of design thinking, again, with the caveat that, you know, you've got speed behind it and you can find ways to move fast and you don't get stuck in some of the paralysis that might happen in iterating. That's a, you know, there's particular skills that are required on the team to really know how to sort of interview customers, how to analyze data without bias, then you need infrastructure, right? You need the tools in place like an A-B testing platform or the actual analytics data and let's say just 
Google, you know, tag manager um, in place and a user testing platform. So the challenges that you'll experience at different companies will be different. You know, CNBC, it was very much sort of, you know, everybody, the mindset was there. Um, we had just sort of been inspired through that, you know, lean UX training. Um, so we really just needed to put the infrastructure in place. Like I said, the, the AB testing platforms and, you know, enable teams to understand that they had some latitude in their sprints to do the, the design work and do the customer research. At a place like Kaplan, I think it's very different because, again, the digital sort of skill set is being is being developed as, as, we're go, as we go. And so a lot of the team structures are what we need to think about. You know, the agile teams are sort of work on a quarter to quarter basis. So you don't really always have a team that can dive deep into a problem, really understand the mindset of a student or a customer, and then build sort of long-term designs and, and experiences and solutions around those problems. In Kaplan, it's more about, you know, mindset, ways of working, developing some of the skills. We have a really strong UX team and we're really building out data to be at the forefront of our decision-making. So we're definitely, you know, making a lot of strides, but the problem to solve is very different. Um, so you really need to, like design thinking is a very complex thing to undertake. As, as you mentioned, you have to figure out sort of where can you um, just sort of work with what you have and just shape the conversation and the thinking around it. Um, don't aim for perfection. There, there really is no perfection. There is only sort of forward movement towards being more customer centric, really putting design at the heart of um, good solutioning and um, helping people understand, you know, we should be driving towards um, data-driven outcomes. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. In terms of, you know, even some of the, the kind of principles around design thinking is really empowering the team to take what they know about customers, come up with different ideas, you know, vet different ideas, really brainstorm and come up with different ways of, of approaching a problem, but then also integrating all that customer feedback throughout the process. It's almost like the team is owning it versus a particular role. And so it's actually kind of a segue into my next question, which is like, what are your thoughts on who should own customer understanding within a company? Do you think it should be owned by a specific team or is this something that everyone should in some way, shape or form own? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I actually feel that there's, it's important for teams to sync on their understanding of the customer. So a single team should really have a shared understanding of the customer, the personas, the mindsets, they should be speaking mm -hmm. a common language and they're defining that, you know, shared understanding together through, you know, whatever means they have of understanding the customer, but you really can't take uh, customer understanding out of the deliverables and outputs of, I would argue almost any role in the company needs that foundation in order to achieve their goals. You know, obviously UX researches the problem and the customer pain point. So they've got that inherent in their job, that understanding product decides sort of the priority of solutions based on the value that they're going to provide to the customer. But sales, you know, needs to know how customers are going to respond to these features. How will it affect pricing? You know, how does it stack up against the competition? Tech needs to make sure that they're building simply and effectively and designing solutions, you know, technical solutions that are going to work for the customer. They can't do that 
without having an understanding of the customer. You know, marketing, obviously, in order to drive acquisition, will need to know how to speak to a customer in a way that resonates with them. I feel that although certainly the, the product and the UX team will drive some of the organizational understanding of the customer, it really does need to be something that each person in their individual role owns so that they can bring that to what their part of the value stream is in the overall business. I agree with your perspective there 100%. Great. So we're going to move into what we call the lightning questions part of the episode. So the, the idea here is we'll just kind of move fairly quickly through these questions and feel free to respond with whatever comes to mind. So tell me about uh, a book you've recently read that you'd recommend to listeners tuning in today. Okay. Um, I just finished uh, BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits. It is a, I'm a BJ Fogg fan because his approach to behavioral, um, you know, product design is, is really simple and interesting. I talk about, you know, three Mm -hmm. unlocking human behavior, ability, motivation, and triggers. So I recommend that one. It's a, it's a good read. Awesome. Yeah. I haven't read that one yet. I love BJ Fogg's work, but that, yeah, I have to add that to my list. What about um, a piece of advice you'd give someone trying to convince others to invest in user experience? This is one that I I hear a lot. So how do you justify user experience? Um, Why is it important? I think a great feature set without a great user experience will eventually lose to the competition. I do think that once customers get over the delight of whatever your feature is, if it's you know, Uber and the fact that I can now summon a car anywhere, anytime to go anywhere. That's great. But eventually they're going to get over the fact that this is new and novel and they're going to want the usability to go with it. They're going to want to do it quickly and not experience any pain doing it. So if you don't sort of move quickly into getting a great user experience around it, they're going to be holding their breath, waiting for the next offer or option to come along. Great point. Yeah. This idea that acquisition isn't the end game, right? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, I love this question. As somebody who's in the field of UX and really appreciates design and great experiences, if you're anything like I am, I think you have an eye for these things and (laughs) tend to notice and um, appreciate great experiences in particular. So do you have a recent great experience that you've had lately? And maybe tell us about it. What made it so great? I would have to say my mom is, you know, in her eighties and uh, she's a few hours away from me and she's got a ton of medications that she's on now. So I was really trying to figure out a solution to how to manage her medications and know what she's taking when, and we found this great digital uh, medication dispenser. It's called Hero and it's been a godsend and it's um, really well designed. It's, you know, obviously has a corresponding app to it. It's very simple for her to understand, for her to set up. And it's been just one of those things where I, there aren't a lot of options out there and they've really nailed the experience. So it was a nice, pleasant surprise. It's been um, one that I recommend to a lot of people. Oh, that's awesome. I haven't heard of this yet. So it's something that maybe houses, I'm just looking it up really quickly. It's something that houses medication and then you're able to use the app to dispense it. That's right. Exactly. Um, she, you know, she takes like 13 meds a day. Right. And so we are always worried that she's going to take the wrong thing at the wrong time. So this dispenses the medication that you need to take at that moment in time, nothing more, nothing less than we can track whether she's taken it. Yeah. So it, it makes her life a lot easier. And then yeah. I don't have to worry because I can look at the app and see exactly what she's taken today. Oh, wow. 
That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. That's um, one of those, you know, pretty life changing. <laughs> uh, it's just the the delight factor is huge because it's such a stressor uh, not to be able to to have that management. And kind of the last question here. So when when you think about the future of UX and design, what are you most excited about? I mean, I, I guess extending from that example I just gave, it's just the beginning for the internet of things. And, you know, right now it feels like a very fragmented, you know, ecosystem, obviously, because it's so nascent, but I'm really interested to see how things become more unified across different platforms and providers so that, you know, you don't have like 15 apps to manage your, you know, home cooling and heating and your (laughs) security and your whatever it may be, your water sensor. I think there's a lot of opportunity to do it, it's going to be very hard and probably will take a while, but I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, you're right. I think there's so much ahead of us uh, and and ways that we can uh, kind of pull disparate things together to create more seamless experiences. I think we'll we'll see quite a lot in the in the next 10, 10, 20 years and beyond. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Rena, this has been so great. Thank you so much for for joining and and sharing your story and and giving us some advice and tips. This has been really valuable. So thank you. Thank you. This was really fun. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, absolutely. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play, so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.